You're listening to In The Company, a podcast about humanising work and designing better working lives. Each episode is curated to provoke you to think more deeply about the things that matter in your career and life and to build your toolkit for how to thrive as a human in business today. We explore how we work from the inside out. I'm Kylie Lewis and it's great to be in your company. Welcome. Today, we're in the company of Dr. Fern White, dental surgeon, founder of an all-female dental practice, Beacon Cove Dental, creator of the Practice Your Passion program for female dentists, and a qualified yoga teacher. Fern came to Australia by boat as a Vietnamese refugee with her family when she was just two years old. Throughout her life, her family's strong work ethic pushed her and her siblings to succeed. In this episode, we talk about how Fern went from a panic attack in the first six months of running her business the way everyone told her she should, to tapping into her own beliefs and wisdom to create a highly successful practice, combining her extensive dental training and personal development tools like mindfulness, breathing and reframing. The combination of modalities represents new ways of dental care for clients and practitioners alike, and actually makes going to the dentist an almost pleasant experience. Welcome, Fern. Hi, thanks, Kylie. You well? Yes, really well. And I'm even better knowing that you're going to be on the line with me for the next half an hour to 45 minutes or so talking about your fantastic business that you've created. I should actually probably disclose that I am one of your patients. You are one of my patients. (laughs) You are. And I wouldn't go anywhere else for my dental work (laughs) because you are just an amazing dentist. And we're going to uncover how you actually approach your work and how you've made this fantastic business different from a lot of other practices and, and why that's so important in business today and how you came to do that from, I guess, uncovering more about yourself and what was really important to you and, in, and embodying who you really were in your business. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, I really just wanted to backtrack a little bit to your background before you were a dentist and how you came to be. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Young Fern and yes. what she like to do as a child and how that might have impacted what you do today? Well, when I start, Young Fern, she was born post-Vietnam War, you know, in Vietnam, and I was a refugee and I came to Australia when I was almost two years old. And I grew up in a very strict migrant family, you know, my parents were strict Catholics and there were six of us. And Unfortunately for young Fern, she didn't have the freedom too much to play and there was a lot of assimilation that had to be done with the Western culture and our Vietnamese philosophies. So my parents brought us up really, really strict and disciplined and they had to, you know, six kids, they were looking after us all by ourselves. And I have to say that really when I was young, I was the oldest daughter of four other younger siblings And I really took on a very nurturing, caring role, right? So that was something that I loved to do. And I helped my mother being the eldest daughter with a lot of her stuff, cooking, cleaning, looking after the young. But in my spare time, when I was not studying or not helping my parents or not going to church, I loved to read. So I would always be having my face in books and I'd be my parents would come and see if we were all asleep and I'd pretend to be sleeping and under the covers I'd have my flash torch and I'd be reading, reading, reading. And I always loved to read and get lost in fantasy. That was my favourite genre. So, you know, the wishing chair and the faraway tree and all the inner Blyden books. And yeah, I loved learning. I loved being curious to new ideas and just new ways of doing things and having a lot of fun in the process. And I used to play school a lot with my brothers and sisters and I'd I'd teach them things that I learnt. So that was what I really loved. But I have to say that one of my distinct memories is actually of my mum and dad giving me, for some reason, the responsibility to help pull my brothers and sisters' teeth out, the baby teeth, because we couldn't afford to go to dentists at that stage. And I'd been such a champion, you know, getting my own little baby teeth out because I knew I didn't want my dad to do it with the floss. And um, I know it was terrible, right? Like he used to get the floss tied around and yank it out. And sometimes it wouldn't come out. And you can imagine for kids. 
And, you know, we've, we grew up extremely poor and we look back now and everyone thinks, oh my God, imagine that, but it was just normal. And so we didn't go to the dentist so much. And then because I was such a go-getter with my own teeth, I was assigned to be the sister, the oldest sister who was in charge of wobbling my brothers and sisters' teeth and pulling them out. And I don't know whether that was predicting my future as a dentist. I don't know. <laughs> Possibly. I would be, <laughs> I'd be predicting that there was something in the stars that, um, that was yeah. going to lead you down that path. But you've also got another sibling that's a dentist as well, right? Yes. So there's an older brother and a youngest brother. And in between, there are three sisters and my youngest sister, so second last is a dentist as well. So yeah. she became into dental. Yes. Yeah, so it's super fun. She didn't get any of those responsibilities though. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, she obviously was looking up to her big sister as what ha- often happens in families, yeah. in large families. Yeah. She tells me so. So we're going to talk a little bit about your practice and how it's come to be and what you do in it that's a little bit different from other practices in a moment. But before we do that, a question that I always ask all my guests is to give us some insight into the kinds of things that you believe in and that direct what you do in your life today. So I would love for you to tell us and listeners about three things that you believe in and why. Well, one of the big beliefs for me, especially having a three-year-old daughter, Phoenix, right now, is I really believe that we need to play more. Like as adults, we need to play more. And I mean, she's been my biggest teacher in this and my biggest reminder in this. But for instance, rather than like in my own navigations as a mother, if she's having a bit of a tantrum or a fit... As soon as I jump down to her level and I play with her, so if I want her to eat broccoli, I start pretending to be the broccoli and pretend to be little characters. She turns around, it empowers her and she chooses to eat it on her own accord. And I just find that that play and that sense of play is something that I needed to also nurture my own inner child and what I didn't get to play. So super, yeah, we need to play more in life. One of the other things that I really believe needs to happen and it is happening is that Eastern and Western medicine need to come together and all of the philosophies need to unite together. I think it's too dangerous to go far in either ends of the spectrum and I feel like amalgamating the two is going to unite medicine and especially unite patients to heal properly. You know, so I feel like that is, that is something that we really need to work on and that's something I'm, I'm really passionate about is to treat our patients as a full body, mind, emotional patient not just a body part. My last belief really is that I don't believe anyone is actually broken. I feel that we are all born whole and the only thing that is getting in our way is all the crud that we put on ourselves over over the years, all the beliefs that we start to have. We know we're caking ourselves in literal crud and if we can all just start to remove the layers over time, we will actually all find that we are whole, just like children are. So that's Mm. my firm belief that we're not broken. Mm, fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I can absolutely see being a patient of your practice, how those things actually also play out in what you do. So could you tell us a little bit about, um, because you started out as a dentist in somebody else's practice first. Yeah. Um, how did you go from being an independent healthcare professional working mm-hmm. for someone else to someone who became a healthcare business owner and building a business? Yeah, that's a huge story, actually. When I was growing up with my parents, I was really only given three things that I needed to become for them to think that I succeeded. And that was their golden triad of doctor, dentist or lawyer. So that's what I did, study, study, study. And my dad, because he, he did really sacrifice everything to get here and he had nothing when he came to Australia, he instilled in us this firm belief and he used to tell me something that would always stick to me as I grew up and I left home and I became a dentist, he always said to me, you need to be someone in this world. You need to be the boss that is success because that was his belief that you needed to be the boss to be successful. And so I had that belief system instilled in me from such a young age and when I graduated, I always knew that that was going to be my focus one day. I needed to be the boss. I needed to be the boss. And I thought that was going to be success, that when I did become the boss, I would be successful. And so when I worked, and I worked at a lot of different practice when I graduated, I graduated very early. I was 22 and I graduated as a young dentist and I worked in multiple different practices part-time with this intention in mind that one day I would own my own clinic somehow. And I then 
really when I worked, I worked strategically. I would really go in to really work in as many different places as I can to find out what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do so that I could eventually have my own clinic. And I was very fortunate after about seven years of working, I actually had a job opportunity with a retiring dentist in Port Melbourne and it allowed me to really become an owner and take over the clinic or a huge mortgage, take over the clinic and, and do what I always knew that I was going to do one day. So that piece of actually jumping with that huge mortgage and we're mm. talking seven figures? No, not quite. We were, I was very lucky. It was a two-chair practice. So I, I took out, I think it would have been about six or 700, but that was with an interest rate of about 13%. So that, that's no equivalent to a seven-figure home loan of some sort, right? And I just didn't hesitate. I had no hesitation. And I really thought that, okay, being a dentist, it's not so hard work. I thought I was a great dentist. I had a lot of skills behind me. And then I bought a clinic. And within six months' time, I had some pretty hard lessons as a business owner and what that actually meant. And my idea of success was totally different to actually what it meant to be fulfilled. Yeah. So what were some of the lessons that you learned six months in? Because as you said, we can often have a picture of how we imagine it to be, but actually Mm. living it is another different story. Absolutely. So on the outside, I thought I achieved everything that success was as according to my parents and what their beliefs of success was. I had a great husband, long-term husband. I had now a practice. I was a boss. I was a dentist. And my own thoughts around owning a clinic, really, if if I pulled aside my parents' what they instilled in me, I really wanted freedom. And I thought, I'm going to have my own business because that will give me the freedom to have a life, to do whatever I wanted in the business, to pick and choose who I wanted to work with and to just do whatever I wanted in the clinic without having to ask permission and grow through my own, the way that I wanted to envision and grow practice. But six months in, what happened was that so many things went wrong so many things. I was working six days a week as a clinician. So I was working in the business. And one of the first key things that went wrong were I took out this huge you know, mortgage, this huge loan to buy this practice. And literally every single big ticket item, it was almost like the 70-year-old retiring dentist had just waited and got things bearing as they came along to just move on. And when he sold me the practice within a few months, I things like the suction unit broke, the compressor broke, the autoclave broke, the dental chair broke. And these, for people who don't know what a dental surgery is like, is the heart of the practice. You cannot operate when any of these one things break. And that would mean days and days and days of having to reschedule patients, buying these big ticket items, which started from about $10,000 each one to $50,000. And yeah, so that was one part of the equation. The other part was staff. And at that point in my life, I thought, I'm a nice person. I just want to be liked by all my staff, right? If I do the right thing by them, they're going to do the right thing by me. So I'll just be friends with them and let's see how it goes. And that was my first lesson was that I was churning over staff. I was working. I didn't know what was going on in the background. I was working in the business and I was working on the business. Any other spare moment I had, sometimes my husband would have to become and be a receptionist when I was really short-staffed and I was trying to keep my patients happy. And then also, you know, in dentistry, it's a lonely game sometimes, but it's also very taxing on the body. And when you're stressed, you contract a lot. And then you also contort yourself in different weird positions to make your patients comfortable because patients don't really like being at the dentist, most of them. So there's a lot of stress all around. You're working to time. And then now you're micromanaging staff and trying to hold it all together. And unfortunately, I have to say, I had about five staff leave or I had to fire staff. And it was just this huge lesson in me wanting to be liked versus oscillating between then feeling resentment because I was saying yes when I meant no. And then as a result of that, I um, yeah would then be triggered and then be this alpha triggered anxious woman who I would just splat and react. So, so many lessons there for me. And I actually, within six months, had my first panic attack, my first and only panic attack. And I have to say that that was a blessing in disguise. I was in so much pain 
I was having cortisone injections to keep going in my shoulders and taking analgesics every day. I was in so much stress and I just kept thinking, this is not what I had in mind. This is not fulfilment. This looks like success on the outside, but I'm suffering. I'm suffering and I have to do something different. So it was because I had this huge breakdown within the first six months that I actually, that propelled me to go in a different direction. It was either do that or really die. I felt like I was dying inside. Mm. Yeah. So really insightful and thank you for being so honest about the things that came up for you because I think there's a lot of people who are listening who are in their own business that could identify with at least one of those things that you've mentioned or the lessons that you've had. We're all in business learning those things along the way as well. Mm-hmm. How did you overcome those issues? What did you do when you were, when you'd hit rock bottom? How did you get back up on, and find the energy and the will to kind of keep going and, and do something different? I really feel like I had to hit rock bottom for me to be in so much pain that that would actually propel me to do something differently because I was just running the same thing over and over and doing the grind day in, day out. And it wasn't until my body was collapsing and it wouldn't take any more that I, I remember on that kitchen floor, I just I just asked for help. I said, what, what do I need to do? I was in so much pain and I was by myself. And the last bit why I was actually having my panic attack at that point was I had a, a, I was just moments before on the phone with the husband of a staff member who I'd fired and he was literally saying things like, I'm going to come and get you and I know where you are. And it was quite abusive. And that was the last straw for me. And I was scared. And it took me, you know, being on the floor for about two hours going, you know what? something needs to change. And I actually realised then when I asked the question, I realised just one thing that that would just help propel me into the direction that I am right now. And that was, if I changed, then my life around me would change. It wasn't actually because of making, wanting everyone else to change. It was actually me. If I could somehow, instead of trying to quiet the craziness and the storms around me, if I could actually just change myself so I could just find that quiet in the storm, what would my life be like? And that one question then allowed me to say, okay, what do I do next? Because I didn't have the answers, but what did I need? And I decided that I would actually then invest in myself for the first time, not just in my clinic, not just in my staff, not in myself as a clinician only. I did that, but I would actually use as much as I could to invest in myself with coaches, with mentors, with people who I wanted to to mirror, see what they were achieving, see how they were doing it, and then just be around those people. And that's what I did in the next few years. And then I learned so much. You know, I followed Tony Robbins around for years. Then I went into embodiment and yoga and I had some incredible teachers, Tara Judell, Michaela Bohem, to teach me about female embodiment and what it meant to be a leader. And I just invested in myself over and over again. And that was how, yeah, I created my vision. I just want to acknowledge just how outrageous it is that you were harassed by the husband of somebody that you, <laughs> like, I, I'm kind of gobsmacked that that even happened and I'm so hor- sorry to hear that happened and and somehow kind of not surprised, sadly, Um but I'm also wanting to just acknowledge just how remarkable it is that you you had the capacity to recognise that something needs to change and what needs to change in this. I'm the common denominator here in, in everything that's going on here. And I often wonder, do you think it's necessary for people to hit rock bottom in order to make the changes that need to happen in their life? You know, because it's a common theme that I hear a lot and I wonder could we be smarter about learning things or is it just something that we need to go through? No, I don't think necessarily you need to go through that. You can also be with someone who has hit rock bottom and that can be, if you're smart enough, then you can see that as a warning sign for yourself. I feel that for me though, really, I was in so much in my mind. I was in the same patterns over and over again. I had my father's shoulds in my head and his voices in my head so much that in order for me to find my own voice, I had to be in that much pain. And sometimes the amount of pain you are in, you know, it's exponential to the amount of growth that you will actually grow and and find yourself. And yeah, I feel like everyone is different, but I feel like there has to be some type of suffering or pain that you either experience yourself or you see with people who are close to you to recognize that, hey, actually, 
there is more to life than this. And having the courage then to actually reach out, like you said, actually um, looking for mentors and advisors and, and being open to learning, cultivating that learning, you know, under the blanket that you did as a young child, bringing that back to the fore and using yeah. that. Yeah, and I just recognised that, that I had stopped learning and growing in myself because I was so consumed with this, this one idea of what success looked like. And then because, you know, my expectations didn't match what was happening in my life right then, I was always getting, I was always suffering. I was always being disappointed in someone else or someone else was always betraying me, which was what I thought. But all I needed to do was actually look at the situation and say, hey, actually, what happens if all of this stuff that was happening to me was actually for me? And what was the growth point in this? And how could I reframe it so I could actually see the growth point in this and see where I needed to grow? And just in, in simple reframing like that, I was actually able to get away from the spiralling and the negativity in my own brain and just start to see a little bit more clearly. And that was it. And so just to stick with that over and over and over and over again. Mm. It's like it's a new practice that you have to learn, right? Because those thoughts don't necessarily go away or stop, but mm. it's the lesson in how to deal with them when they show up. And it is a practice and it is about fully committing. And for me, a couple of the things that I really, that helped propel me forwards was setting a vision of what it was that I wanted to be, the best version of myself and why, as opposed to just, I just want to be the boss for whatever reason, because my dad wanted me to be, you know, what was propelling me forward was that how I wanted to have children one day. And I thought, how am I going to be? How am I going to even fit that into the equation? I really wanted a daughter and I just thought to myself, how am I going to teach her and be the teacher to her if I can't even get my stuff together? And so that was a vision for me that was stronger than me and it was leverage to say, okay, I'm going to be the best that I can be for all of this. It's a very powerful thing, isn't it, when you can actually take it outside of just yourself. Yes. And I think that's what leadership is really about. It's really about showing up as the kind of person that you want to inspire others to be like. Um, there's a great quote that Brene Brown has and she asks a defining question and is it, are you the adult that you hope your child grows up to be? You know, are you modelling those behaviours? Are you leading with compassion and integrity but also boundaries? You yes. know, that kind of thing is, is super important. So finding that vision, even if it's not about necessarily having children but having that vision of, you know, if this isn't working for me, how could it be different? Mm. And, and as the first point of view of actually creating a vision for yourself. And also, it's just for me being the example that I wanted to see in everyone else, instead of wanting other people to change around me like my staff, how do I change myself so that I can be the example to show them what it is like? And that's so much more powerful than expecting people to be a certain way and wanting to change them. Do you know how annoying it is when people want to change you? <laughs> it's just like, go and change yourself. And that's really what happened with my staff is that as I changed, my values got much more concrete and I had my vision. And I really started to know myself more and have boundaries and learn how to say no, but doing it authentically and not having to lead as anyone else but myself. I started to attract women into my clinic, my staff who wanted to have those, who aligned with those same values. And then suddenly I started to get a really amazing core team, you know, some of which who already still have been with me for the whole time. And they were the ones who ended up helping me as well with my vision and they were the ones who when new staff came in if they didn't fit it was so easy now because they would just you know automatically eliminate themselves and it was not just me working towards that vision it was my whole team now mm. so and that's what I feel like that's what creates the heart in the practice. So I can see where you've gone from that external focus of what success looks like and, and that shoulds of, of what was expected and trying to keep up with all of that and where that got you to then kind of turning it around and saying, okay, what, what is it that I want out of this and how do I want it to be an expression of who I am and my values and what I care about? Yes. And then that was the next iteration that ended up in an expression of an all-female dental practice. Yeah, it happened organically like that. I didn't actually set out 
believe it or not, to actually only have females at the practice. But because I was doing embodiment work and I was practicing yoga and my team were doing the same thing and we were naturally having, for instance, a ritual in the morning where we would do a mindful practice, a movement practice and set intention together. And then we would go on retreats together so that it was a bit of a powwow for the team members. It was just easier to have females on board who were aligned with that. And then we started to see, oh, you know, it, it just it just happened like that. And we, you know, we have like different things are at the clinic. We have beautiful scents and we have really feminine, I feel like it's a, quite a feminine feel igniting all the senses so that we're not only working in the masculine all the time, but we have these little beautiful cards everywhere, little goddess cards and things like that where we'd pick every day and we'd talk about it and, you know, call in something for all of ourselves. And it naturally just happened to attract females. <laughs> This episode of In The Company is brought to you by Victoria's Small Business Festival happening throughout Victoria during August 2018. The festival offers a wide range of practical, interactive and innovative events that cover topics such as business planning, marketing, social media, networking and financial management. All events are either low cost or free and are designed to help small business owners improve their productivity and business nows while engaging with other like-minded businesses and industry experts. For more information, visit festival.business.vic.gov.au. So I follow you on Instagram and I've seen lately you've been posting the daily rituals that you just spoke about on Instagram where you see everybody who's working in the practice engaging in some of those embodiment techniques that you've mentioned and, you know, some of the things that you can see that go behind the scenes so that everyone in the practice shows up fully and wholeheartedly in the service of the work. Yeah, and it's just the true thing as opposed to coming in and having a sales script and all of that. My team, I want them to grow with me. And I always say to my team, you know, if this is a practice where you're not feeling that you're not growing anymore, that you are welcome to, you know, leave. This is a place where you grow. And if it's not fitting you anymore, go, you know. Mm-hmm. And the women, I know that it's, you know, it's just as authentic and with heart as possible. So I want us to heal our patients with heart and that's bringing our true authentic selves out, out, each and every one of us. But we also be with each other with heart, you know, and we speak to the values such as integrity and love and health and growth. They're some of our key values. And so we're just starting really to dive into social media and Beacon Cove and even my own work on Instagram. But it's just starting to, how do we show the culture of the practice and how do we help inspire other practices maybe to be this way as well? Mm. You know, fully as ourselves. We don't need to be anyone else. And that's what um, I hope you can feel in the practice. Well, it's definitely something that I have felt in the practice. I wanted to actually just tap into that because I, when I had to have that treatment done, Mm -hmm. that was quite intense, the way that you approached that at the beginning where you actually got me to do some mindful breathing and gave me tips and tricks and hints about how to manage myself through that process was just phenomenal. Can you just share with our listeners some of the things that you've learned through your embodiment work and how you bring that to your dentistry that I think is probably a very unique combination Yeah, well, that's something that I've tried to cultivate with the girls themselves, but that's one of my passions. I actually realise that I'm amazing at the technical side of dentistry, but what I love more is is the connection with the patients. And that's what we spend the time to do. And you need time for this. And what I did with you was a smaller version of what I would do because a lot of my clinical practice is now around surgery. So big surgery like implants and bone grafting and scary stuff and uh, full mouth rehab. And that means just replacing and recontouring the whole smile, you know, getting someone's confidence right up there, changing emotional dentistry. And a lot of people obviously have fear around dentists. A lot of it is um, you'll see baby boomers having so much fear from what was instilled in them in childhood because that's a lot, a lot of where our childhood trauma comes from. And, you know, everything about the dentist, such as even the drills and the noise, that just kicks someone back into that fear. And it's unbelievable. You see CEOs of companies and barristers and all these people, very important in their day-to-day life, being reduced down to like a quivering mess sometimes in the dental chair. And so, and this is why I really wanted my own clinic as well, so I could play around and experiment with different modalities on what it means to heal someone. And we would still have all the things like nitrous oxide, laughing gas and Valium, all the medications and, that you'd have on the sidelines. But the beauty of it was that I was able to experiment with using things and, and really empowering patients to heal themselves 
first and giving them back the power. And I remember one of my big cases actually was a woman, a young woman who came in for wisdom teeth extraction. She didn't say anything. She was just kind of quiet. On the medical film, she didn't say anything. And I found that fear, like it's so interesting, fear appears in so many different ways. You can have someone who's really defensive and angry or you can have someone completely contracted and quiet or just a frozen, you know, someone who says, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then there's so many things that happen and get uncovered in the dental chair. So this one young lady, she came and as I was giving her some anaesthetic, she was having all four surgical wisdom teeth out. So it wasn't a straightforward procedure. And she seemed okay. So I didn't do any of the, you know, techniques, even though I asked her if she wanted anything. And she said she was okay. And then as as I was giving her the anaesthetic, she actually started to fit, like shake and convulse, and then she fainted. And then when she came to... It was, she explained and I said, oh, what's going on? And I sat with her and I got her back breathing in her body, feeling her body, you know, because often trauma, she just disappeared. And when she came to, when I actually opened up and started talking to her more, because she didn't want to disclose anything until that had happened, it was almost as if she'd been found out. She mentioned that she had these huge trauma around dentists. And when she was a child, she used to take herself to a different place by fainting. And being out, and that was how she learned how to disappear from trauma, whatever was going on. And so she could actually convulse and faint. And that was something that she'd learned as a child. And she said, Oh, that actually always happens to me at the dentist, and it always happens to me at the doctor's. And I said, Oh, wow, thanks for telling me. Thanks for this woman, you know, usually I can tell when people are a bit fearful, but this woman just everything was fine with her at the start. You know, she seemed fine until that happened. And so what I did with her was I got her to come back into her body and I got her to breathe with me and I breathed with her. So one of the key things I do is just breathing and showing them what the breath and how powerful the breath is to come back into the body and breathe and move the body gets you out of the mind into the body again, right? Because a lot of the trauma actually resides in the body, like just moving the body. And so we sat with her and just breathing for literally about five to 10 minutes, getting her back into her body, kicking in the parasympathetic nervous system so she wouldn't feel like she had to move into the fight, flight, or freeze, the sympathetic nervous system. And so I got her doing that continuously, breathing into her belly. And of course, the breath's not going in your belly. It's going into the lower, lower lobes of the lungs. But what that means is that you're just breathing full and deep and your out breath is longer than the in breath. And so that kicks in the vagus nerve. And that is responsible for the parasympathetics. And so we did that. And then what I did with her was I did a mindset technique. So it's also not only the body. I feel like with trauma, it's not just the body. It's also letting go of the stories that have been created in the mind. And so I sat with her and I did this. It's kind of similar to a swish pattern in NLP, but I've kind of turned it a little bit more feminine. And it was setting an intention really of how she would be in the best version of herself and just seeing that and feeling that in her body and completely seeing the surgery being done and she would be completely empowered and fine and everyone's cheering her on. Like we set the scene so powerfully for her that she could feel it in her body and I anchored it in her body. And then I said to her, and listen, there's always Valium and nitrous if you need it, if all else fails. So it's almost like she had, you know, something to buffer and fall upon if she didn't believe any of the stuff that was going on. And after I went through that, and that process took about 15 minutes, I gave her the anaesthetic and we took out the surgical wisdom teeth and she was absolutely fine. And she jumped out of the chair and she gave me a big hug and she started to cry. And she said, oh my God, for the first time, you know, that was amazing. That was amazing. And she was so empowered. And when I saw her in the review two weeks later, she cried again and she just said, oh, my God, I feel like I'm a new person. And really the power of that is not even around the dental work itself. It's a power around empowering someone to believe something else that, you know, it's just trauma release. It's empowering them to say, hey, I'm moving, I'm moving on, I'm growing, I'm changing, and I believe in myself that I can do that. And that to me is amazing. That's why I do what I do. I mean, I'm kind of speechless about that because you've not only treated what she came in for, but you have given her tools that will extend for her whole life in other situations and circumstances she might find where she has that response to. That's incredibly powerful. And and it is. And it's so, and I even stunned myself sometimes because half of the time I'm always thinking, I've always got the buffer, right? And my work is not evidence-based. It's just clinically like what I've done and how I've been doing it for the last six years with these trauma patients. 
And I feel that for her, she said to me, I've been seeing a psychologist for such a long time, for years and years and years and years because of all these issues. In the dental chair, it's not even something that you go home with and you see if it works or not in the next few weeks or anything. It's just instantaneous. It's like, do you have trauma? And now you don't have trauma in that instance. And it's just amazing. And I, I really feel that if all practitioners can work in this way, not just with dentistry, but in medicine as well, imagine how empowered our patients would be. And imagine, I feel like the body is there, it wants to heal, but there's so many blockages that we, we ourselves put there. And if we can somehow help our patients unblock those and just stop us standing in the way, the, the body knows what it needs to do. Mm. You know, we just need to get out of the way. Mm. And so we can heal our patients. And that's what I mean when I say heal our patients with heart. Yes, and see them for a, as a whole person, not just the one thing that they've come for. That's right. Yeah. And unfortunately, our medical world, our Western medical world is not really conducive to healing patients with heart. You know, it's, it's often just even the hospital setting itself. And that's why I guess I make my clinic as unhospitalized as possible, still using all the sterilization techniques and what we need. But I feel that that's the first point of contact, just trying to get rid of all the things that trigger trauma. Mm, really, really powerful. And um, what, a, what an incredible gift to that woman beyond just having being free of her wisdom teeth. <laughs> but um, understanding the power of her breath is just incredibly important. And that certainly helped me. But actually challenging her about the stories that she had and giving her tools to create a new version or a new vision and knowing that she had people in her corner that supported her through that and Absolutely. that she had backup in the in the actual drugs if she needed them. Yes, so many layers, right? So many layers to reassure and just say to her that you are safe now. And I think that's the biggest thing is just how do we reassure patients, but also how do we help them believe that they are safe? Because if they're safe, then the body kicks into the parasympathetic nervous system and it tells you and it secretes the hormones that you need to heal, to digest, to repair, all of those things. But if we're constantly in the fight or flight, the body's secreting hormones like adrenaline and cortisol that tell us that we need to survive and it's not thinking about healing. And I feel that that's the kicker. That's the big point in medicine. And it sounds like that, that was almost like the, your lesson that you learned from that six months in being on the kitchen floor, Absolutely. having that threatening phone call and, yes. you know, being in a trauma-like state yourself mm-hmm. and learning how to get through that and then being able to integrate that and pass that on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my body was in so much pain and what I was doing is I was ignoring it and and sedating it with painkillers and cortisone injections and Botox injections in my face to release my jaw. You know, I was giving it poisons because I just wanted to keep going. I wasn't listening to the signs that it was telling me. Mm. And also creating that vision for yourself of how it could be different. You know, it didn't have to be this model that was presented to you or or based on everybody else's shoulds. Yeah. Yeah. So powerful. So inviting your own creativity and your own way of the world and integrating those other things that you've learned to create a phenomenal practice, you know, that is really offering the whole person care, very patient-centered care. Mm, Thank you. So how do you take care of yourself in your own business now? In my own business, in terms of the clinic, clinical practice, I'm actually about to take a, <laughs> unfortunately for all the listeners out there, I'm about to take, I'm taking a 12-month sabbatical off clinical practice so that I can actually bring this practice out to the world, right, and empower women in dentistry to do the same thing. How do I look after myself? I actually have a pretty disciplined way of looking after myself. And I actually schedule in the time. And as you know, with children, with the three-year-old, it's often hard because things can just turn upside down. But always in my practice, I have a morning routine or ritual that I get up, I drink two glasses of warm water. I might do a nasal salt rinse, a cleanse, because I have a little bit of hay fever, those type of things. I look after my body. And then I always do a, I light the candles. I have a little altar, an offering to myself, uh, non-denominational, so it's not really religious. And I sit and I always do a movement practice first. So one of the trainings that I've been trained in with Michaela Bowem is something called nonlinear movement, which is an embodiment practice, super simple. But what it does is it's just moving the body, how it feels to unravel the nervous system. And I do about 10 minutes, 15 minutes of that to create homeostasis back in my own body because we're constantly stressed and on the go and doing things. And then I do always do a mindful practice, so some type of meditation. And it's only a small one, 10, 15 minutes. 
And then I do a little quick workout and a, a yoga practice. And then I always take my dog for a walk, get out into nature and do my lives and my vlogs and all of those things I need to do while my mind's fresh. So I tick all of that off. So that's my morning ritual, for instance. Yeah. And how I look after myself. Yeah. Do you get to that every day? I do it and I give myself a day off on Sundays. <laughs> it's my rest day. I let my routine go astray on Sundays. But right now, because I'm um, moving into the online space, I've realised that I've been unleashed into this crazy world of distractions. And for 15 years, I had so much discipline in the dental clinic, being able to work to time and patience. And now being on this in this online world where I'm coaching women, I just feel like I need this more than ever to structure my day because I, I would be a sucker. That's my shadow. I'd get distracted. I'd get pulled into so many different things so easily. So routine really sets you free. That was a lesson that I learned very early on. It's one of those paradoxes that we think when we're a business owner, I can have that freedom like you mentioned, but it can come back and bite you if you don't create some structure and routine and accountability in there. Um, yeah, absolutely. But also then I feel like giving yourself also time to just rest and play and scheduling that in as well, making sure you schedule that in and giving yourself a rest day where you can just let go of everything and just say this is intentional, being intentional about it as opposed to feeling like you need to grab it at intervals. Mm. So, yeah, super important. Or feeling like you need to be productive in every spare moment yeah, of the day. Some of the produ- yeah, some of the productivity is having intention. My productivity around this now is nurturing myself <laughs> and that is my goal and that's yeah. what I'm going to do in this block. That's yeah. right. Because you've got, if you've got nothing in the tank, you've got nothing left to give anybody else. You need to yeah. be able to top up your own tank first. That's massive, yes. So you've just you've alluded to that year off that you're taking. So you now coach other female dentists to embody some of these ideas that you've brought to your practice very successfully. Can you tell us a little bit about your next leap into that next business that you've got going? Yes. Well, the leap has been going since last August and already it's been phenomenal. It's been phenomenal for me because it's been there's another huge growth and stress period for me as well and facing my own fears because it's also facing my fears is the number one thing that really started was like, who am I to do this? Why would people listen to me? And feeling like, oh no, I've always been so private and I've always separated my work life from my social life and never, ever use social media, as you would know, And uh, when we last talked. And then I entered a mastermind group to help me kickstart this business because I had a vision that kept coming back to me that my calling is something more than just this. I'm meant to move out into the world and influence and inspire more women because if I could do that, then I could help so many more people than just a one-on-one. And it meant that I needed to face my own fears and first of all, start doing a vlog, a live, get my message out there on my, on my page. And I remember the first time that I had to do that, I almost vomited. I was so nervous. You know, I can do implant surgery and, and grow bone again in someone's jaw that this was like beyond, it was just exposing myself and, you know, and what happens if people saw and what happens I can never erase this and who's watching this, right? And what would people think? So, so many layers of insecurity came up for me again to start this business. But it was for me to commit to showing up every day, rain, hail, shine, knowing my niche, knowing who I wanted to help, getting, being really clear on my vision. And my vision was to help basically me, women like me 10 years ago, who was struggling, who was stressed, we're so alone, we wear many hats and we don't know how to juggle it all. And it was to amalgamate my 10 years of learning into an eight-week course, online course, where I could reach as many women in dentistry as possible with this and, you know, help them break through mindset, the emotions, move them back into their bodies. How do we become better leaders? And then when we, like you said, when we feel ourselves first, then how do we heal our patients and our staff and all the people around us with heart? And so, yeah, that was, that's been my journey for the last uh, almost 11 months. And really, Facebook was my medium, which I absolutely didn't want to use, but I had to, and paying Facebook ads as well and getting into that. That's another story. But um, I feel like it's been incredible, 200 women worldwide now in my course, changing lives and being able to speak at numerous conferences, international conferences about this. I feel like everything in my life has led to this point now. And that's why I'm taking some time off to concentrate on this baby. 
Yeah, fantastic. Congratulations. And thank you for sharing your hard-won lessons so that, you know, as we mentioned, so that we don't all have to go through that, you know, fall on the kitchen floor moment. Um, <laughs> if, we, if we can give ourselves the permission to learn from others who have gone forward from us. Yes, so absolutely. you've got women from around the world doing it. Do you find that there's any cultural kind of issues that show up in any of your training? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, once again, I, it's a very tight-knit group. But I always ask women to step into their fear and I invite them. So, for instance, I ask them to do a Facebook Live to the group. And there's, you know, women who, and I understand there's, you know, there's it's so multicultural in my group, but there is also a lot of women from India, a lot of women from Asia who are, I know culturally we're super, super private and suspicious of mediums like Facebook and where it's all going to go. So culturally, they don't want to step out in the shadows. And I completely understand because I was like that. And it's hard to shift some of those beliefs in, in feeling judged. But I feel that until we can start to break through some of those beliefs, you know, we're always going to stay in the sidelines and just be watchers. And we're never going to step out and create the life that we want to live, not what other people have told us. So, yeah, I, absolutely I see that. And sometimes it's really hard and challenging for me to encourage those women to step out and actually even do a live or be vulnerable. It's super hard. But you get there? Do they get there in the end? Yeah, we'll get there. And, look, a lot of them are really quiet on the sidelines and they haven't really, you know, come forth with the group so much, but then they have these massive breakthroughs on their own. So, yeah, I hope they get there, you know. And as you know, Kylie, with these type of online courses, it's so hard because you're not there face-to-face with people. So my next move is actually creating a what I call a centre circle group so I can work with more closely and also creating big retreats and seminars so that we can feel people because we need to communicate and connect as women. The online space can only do so much. Real life is still the best social media there is. (laughs) Hence, you're on a plane in a few days' time to go on your massive world tour. Um, You're leaving the practice, though, in very good hands with your staff that are there. So for people who are interested in how to find out more about you and what you're doing, where could they do that? Yeah, look, the practice is beaconcovedentalgroup.com.au and the women there are sensational. They're all women who go through a rigorous program to actually get in there to start off with, to be honest. And we're all different, you know, but the the truth is that they've got the heart and the vision and the practices may not be exactly what I do, but they're on their own personalities. And yeah, they're looking always for the best interests of the patient. So they will heal with heart. So my clinic is Beacon Cove Dental in Port Melbourne and you can find them there. But myself, you can find me uh, at drfern.com.au. And, you know, my goal is also to spread this message to all medicine women. So if you ever want to find me to, to talk or to give talks or presentations, I'm always happy to do that to empower women of any sort, not just dentist women. So that's where you can find me. And of course, my Facebook page, Dr. Fern White, probably five to six times a week, I have a vlog every single day with a lesson on it for uh, medicine women, I call us, but really it can be relatable to every woman. Fantastic. Now, I've got a few things to do to wrap up the show and we've gone over a time because we could talk underwater. We have such a great time when we get together. Um, Could you give us an insight? What are three things you hope people take away from our conversation today? Okay, so the first thing for me is everything's impossible until you make it possible. So everything in your mind is impossible. Everything I thought was impossible. If you told me when I first started my practice that this is where I would be right now, I would have not believed you, you know, to doing Facebook lives and all of these things and speaking on stage. And it is, you just need that vision and you need to believe it. The second thing is when the crap hits the fan, right? There are so many things that you can do to not spiral. And a few things that you want to ask yourself is what are the questions you're asking yourself right now? Are they empowering questions or are they questions that are pulling you down? Like what's wrong with me? And when you are in a spiral or in a rut, how can you reframe it and see the silver lining and just feel the emotions moving through you and not subscribe to the emotion to keep it going over and over again, if that makes sense. So one of the mantras I live by is right now I'm feeling dot, 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 and that's okay. Right now I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling grief and that's okay. Feel it through your body, move your body and allow it to go. Don't let it get stuck and don't keep it running with the story. And the last thing I would say is stop trying to change other people. Be the change that you want to see in everyone else. 
Fantastic. Now we've got our last 10 by 10 to finish. We're on the home stretch. I have 10 (laughs) questions. You've got maximum of 10 seconds to answer each one of them, but I'm pretty sure that we can power through them pretty quickly. So um, strap yourself in and here we go. 10 by 10. What I like about myself is? What I like about myself is how I can balance discipline and drive. So my masculine, and then I can balance my play, my creativity and my flow. So my feminine, my yin and my yang. I beat procrastination by? I beat procrastination by making it so hard to not do things that I I think I know I should, that I actually end up doing them. So I I just make it so easy for me to do them. A song on my life soundtrack is? Rolling Hills by Jill Scott. It's a very cool feminine flowy one. Go for it. You should listen. I'm a big Jill (laughs) Scott fan. Big Jill Scott fan. The world needs more... Definitely more heart. More dentists with heart too. Um, A phrase I live by is? Everything that you ignore, you condone. So don't stand back in the sidelines and ignore. Just speak up. Something everyone must do is? Is a Facebook Live. (laughs) You need to get up there, feel the fear and do it anyway. Feels great after doing it. Challenge accepted. A book that changed me is? Okay, I've got two books that I love. One is The Myths of Avalon. So it just shows us about our power as females and it's a fantasy. And the other one is The Four Agreements. Fear and I? Fear and I, you know, we're old friends, we're girlfriends right now. I know that fear is excitement without the breath. Something that always makes me feel good is definitely dancing, moving my body, dancing. To Jill Scott. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> to Jill Scott. <laughs> and my legacy will be number 10. My legacy will be. Yeah, definitely for me, empowering medicine women to step up, to find their freedom, and then heal themselves first and lead and then heal all their patients with heart and basically turn the medical industry upside down with women. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Fern. It's been a delight to be in your company today. Um, Onward and upward, medicine women around the world. And um, we're going to wrap the show there. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode of In The Company. I hope you've enjoyed listening and tucked away a few gems to bring to your working life. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to our channel. And if you've loved what you've heard today, please share it with your kinfolk who might also be in the need of some good company. And if you feel so inclined, we'd be super grateful for our review on iTunes.